0: Welcome to Read By, a new podcast where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, David Mitchell reads a playlist of fiction and poetry he says he'd call winter, some ghosts, and the summer. To learn more from Mitchell about his choices, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, David Mitchell.
1: Hello, I'm David Mitchell. This is a very short story by John Connolly called A Tale of Winter, and it's from John's anthology, Night Music 2. A Tale of Winter. When I was a boy, I attended a school that stood by a cemetery. Mine was the last desk, the one closest to the graveyard. I spent years with my back to the darkness of it. I can remember how, as autumn neared its end and winter gathered its strength, I would feel the wind begin to blow through the window frame and think that the chill of it was like the breath of the dead upon my neck. One day in the bleakness of January, when the light was already fading as the clock struck four, I glanced over my shoulder and saw a man staring back at me. Nobody else noticed him, only I. His skin was the gray of old ash long from the fire. "'and his eyes were as black as the ink in my well. "'His gums had receded from his teeth, "'giving him a lean, hungry aspect. "'His face was a mask of longing. "'I was not frightened. "'It seems strange to say that, but it is the truth. "'I knew that he was dead, "'and the dead have no hold of us "'beyond whatever we ourselves surrender to them. "'His fingers touched the glass.' But left no trace. And then he was gone. Years passed, but I never forgot him. I fell in love and married. I became a father. I buried my parents. I grew old and the face of the man at the school window became more familiar to me. And it seemed that I glimpsed him in every glass. Finally, I slept. And when I awoke, I was no longer as I once had been. There is a school shed that stands by a cemetery. In winter, under cover of fading light, I walk to its windows and put my fingers to the glass. And sometimes a boy looks back. A word on statistics. Poem by Wisława Szymborska, translated by Joanna Treciak, A word on statistics. Out of every hundred people, those who always know better, 52. Unsure of every step, nearly all the rest. Ready to help, as long as it doesn't take long, 49. Always good, because they cannot be otherwise. Four, well, maybe five. Able to admire without envy, 18. Led to error by youth, which passes, 60 plus or minus. Those not to be messed with, 40 and four. Living in constant fear of someone or something, 77. Capable of happiness, 20 some odd at most. Harmless alone, turning savage in crowds, More than half, for sure. Cruel, when forced by circumstances. It's better not to know, not even approximately. Wise in hindsight. Not many more than wise in foresight. Getting nothing out of life but things. 30, although I would like to be wrong. Doubled over in pain, without a flashlight, in the dark, Eighty-three sooner or later. Those who are just, quite a few at thirty-five. But if it takes effort to understand, three. Worthy of empathy, ninety-nine. Mortal. One hundred out of one hundred. A figure that has never varied yet. proof by Henry Cecil. The pompous, self-satisfied little lawyer from London had been holding forth the whole evening and I had tried in vain to deflate him. I had an instinctive dislike of lawyers and this one was a particularly odious specimen. I disliked him all the more because everyone else seemed interested in what he had to say and he was allowed virtually to monopolise the conversation. We had been sitting in the bar of the small Lakeland Hotel where I had been spending a much-needed holiday from going up and down the country trying to sell the publications of a new Psychical Research Society. As my earnings were entirely dependent on what I sold, I had a hard time of it to make a living, trying to persuade very matter-of-fact earthy people to buy our books on psychic phenomena. How I wished that some manifestation would present itself to the busy little lawyer and reduce his self-esteem, but nothing happened. On and on he went and it was a great relief to me when two strangers suddenly came in and distracted everyone's attention from him. They were very ordinary looking people, but they entered with some noise and, as their faces were unknown to any of us, their entrance automatically stopped the conversation. They walked straight up to the bar, ordered a pint of beer each, and drank it without a word. That done, they repeated the dose, and only then did they seem to relax. Finally, one said to the other, Well, that was a complete and utter waste of time. Absolutely. Do you know, said the first, addressing us generally, we've been all the way up to the top of Grimston Crag, and we didn't see a thing. They could not have been ordinary climbers, as no climber would consider... Any climb a waste of time, view or no view. Accordingly, none of us was much impressed, and I was afraid that the little lawyer would soon be holding forth again. However, the second stranger had said, Terrible waste of time. Hours of solid climbing and nothing to show for it, except a thirst. A small man at the end of the bar, whom I had not previously noticed, said, You don't know what a waste of time is. Everyone turned towards the speaker. "'Waste of time,' he repeated. "'Let me tell you of a waste of time "'which will make you feel that every moment of your climb was well spent.' "'Without waiting for an invitation, he went on. "'It was a good many years ago, and it happened in these parts. "'A detective was trailing a badly wanted criminal. "'He'd almost caught up with him "'when the fellow went off into the mountains at night. "'It was moonlight, and the detective who was dead keen, went after him. By luck, he sighted him against the sky and, after a scrambling climb, at last got within hailing distance and called on the man to surrender. But as he did so, the detective slept and eventually found himself, by the mercy of God, with a sprained or broken ankle on a slightly projecting ledge. Below, a drop of hundreds of feet. Above, almost sheer. He regretted his hasty pursuit and was wondering whether and when he would be rescued when he heard the criminal hailing him. Hello there, said the criminal. I'll go and get a rope. The detective said nothing for a moment and then he shouted, Are you William Turner? Certainly. I have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of Sidney Blunt. Well, what are you going to do about it? asked Turner. You're under arrest now, said the detective. Doesn't feel like it said Turner. Now, look here, said the detective. I naturally want to get out of here, but I can't let you haul me out without telling you that I shall arrest you as soon as you do. It will be seen that the detective had a particularly high standard of morals. Oh, shut up, said the criminal, whose morals were, except for the little matter of the murder, equally high. I'm going for a rope. And he went away. Hours later, he returned, when the detective had almost given him up. It had come on to rain during the night and rained incessantly next day and no one had come into his sight since Turner left. Are you still alive?' shouted Turner. "'I don't want to waste my time if you're not.' "'Yes!' shouted the detective. "'I'm afraid I'm by myself,' said Turner. "'But you'll understand that in the circumstances.' The detective did understand, but he began to wonder how he could be rescued by one man alone, even with a rope.' You'll have to wait a bit, said Turner, and began to make the descent. I won't describe the difficulties to experts like you gentlemen, said the speaker, but you may take it that even you would have found it a tough proposition. As it was, neither Turner nor the detective were real climbers, and it was remarkable that Turner was able to reach the detective at all. However, after some time, he did so, and threw one end of the rope to him. Now, whether the detective's ankle was broken or only sprained doesn't matter very much. You can perhaps visualise the appalling nature of their attempt to climb to safety. It required every ounce of strength and nerve each of them possessed. However, at long, very long last, their almost superhuman efforts, very different I may say from those needed for the little stroll you two gentlemen have just taken, were rewarded and they got to safety, and stood looking at each other. The detective almost fainted as a result of the pain and exertion, but he had just enough strength to say, Thank you. I'm sorry. And, with the last words, to, to aim a blow at Turner's jaw with the idea of knocking him out. He had, of course, realised that unless he could do this, Turner would make good his escape. He had warned him that he would arrest him, and, like a good detective... He felt bound to do so if he could. Unfortunately, he had wholly insufficient strength to carry out his purpose and as Turner avoided the blow, the detective lurched sideways and fell over the edge. As he was still roped to Turner, the latter was carried after him and they crashed to death hundreds of feet below. And you two, gentlemen, talk of a waste of time. Very interesting, piped up the lawyer, and once again attention was focused on him. But do you suggest that story is true? Absolutely, said the small man gravely. Now, gentlemen, said the lawyer, I think I can demonstrate to you conclusively that our friend here has been pulling your legs. The story can't be true. He paused and took the middle of the floor. "'Now, sir,' he went on, "'did I rightly understand you to infer "'that there were no witnesses of this accident?' "'Quite,' said the small man. "'And did both men die instantaneously?' "'Quite.' (laughs) "'Then,' said the lawyer, "'as no one saw them die, "'and as they could have told their story to no one, "'you couldn't possibly know that it happened, "'as you have told us.' He paused and gazed in triumph round his audience. Unless, of course, he added facetiously, you chance to be the ghost of one of the men. Quite, said the small man, and vanished. Adelstrop by Edward Thomas Yes, I remember Adelstrop. The name... Because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there, unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left, and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb and grass, a meadow sweet and haycocks dry. No whit less still and lonely fair, than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute, a blackbird sang close by, and round him, mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. I'm reading from chapter eight of The Country Child by Alison Utley chapters chapter is entitled Trees. Trees had always had a strange fascination for Susan ever since she had lain an infant wrapped up in a shawl in a clothes basket in the orchard, babbling to the apple trees and listening to their talk. They are queer, half-human creatures, alive yet tied to the ground. Lucky they are tied too, for rooted they are safe. One night, Susan dreamt she looked through the big window in the kitchen, past the bright milk cans reared upon the wall, to the stretch of fields rolling up to the crest of hills in the north. She saw a company of mighty trees, beeches oaks and elms of prodigious size walk over the skyline, sweeping down the hills to the fields, a giant assemblage of shining ones with branches waving like a hundred arms, vast trunks moving serenely but terribly, and the green hair of leaves shaking in the wind. The cows and horses started up affrighted. Her mother and father paled in horror as they stared with her through the window, and she stood, transfixed, aghast, listening to the approaching rustle like the sound of the sea, waiting for these gods to destroy the house and farm as they walked through them to the hills and of the sky in the south. She awoke in great fear and told her dream the next day. Margaret? called it nonsense, a nightmare, but Tom looked serious. He knew the trees and had heard a cry when the woodmen cut down the great oak where the plantation now stood, a cry of anguish. But the ash, Susan's friend, was none of these. It stood free-growing, graceful, with branches tossing like the arms of a dancer when the south wind blew across the plough field and orchard bringing the scent of flowers and carrying bees from the skeps under the apple trees. Cows sheltered under its wide stretching boughs when the rain beat down the long leaves and the wind came bellowing like a maddened bull up the field from the deep valley and the great hills beyond, lashing its branches and tearing them, so they lay with black knotted fingers on the ground. It was sheltered from the east wind and the north by the hills that circled close to it, but the west wind tried to sweep it away. In the hottest summer days when haymaking was over, red and dappled cows and white-faced Herefords stood by its great trunk, frisking their tails, gently shaking their heads, waiting to be called to the milking sheds. In the winter it stood stark and bare like a naked witch. Then its long arms beckoned and waved, beseeching, imploring, menacing. Susan came to it and talked. She tried to pacify it, laying her cheek against its wet trunk and her hands on its bark. For when the snow fell, it was a white lady, a queen, mysterious, silent, desiring nothing, possessing all. One summer day, Susan lay under its branches, listening to the multitude of sounds around her. At the edge of the field, in the wood, the fir trees moaned like waves on the seashore, as if they had a little wind of their own chained to their boughs. But under the ash, the wind sang softly. The sycamores quivered their silver-lined leaves, nodding to those who could understand. Flies droned and bees hummed, and little green froghoppers bobbed on her hands with the tiniest thuds of their geometrical bodies. The pulse of the wind dropped so low every few seconds that she heard the faint flutter of flower petals dropping near her on the grass. By the side of the bridle path, the gorse pods popped like fairy cannons shooting the grasshoppers. Against the background of the wind's sound was the music of birdsong, chirps and twitters, quavers and ripples. One little bird ran down the scale and another sang a monotonous dirge of two notes, ting-tong, like water dropping from a well. Another sound, very faint but familiar, began to penetrate her consciousness. She put her ear to the ground to listen, and the tinkle was more distinct. Nearby was a flat stone which she had seen before, half hidden in the long grass, sunken in the earth, so that the mower's scythes were unharmed when they went over it. She raised one corner with great difficulty, using all her young strength and the sound rose like imprisoned music escaping from a hidden orchestra. She tugged again and dragged the stone aside. Underneath was a hole, wet and sweet smelling of earth. Deep down, a tiny jet of water played like a fountain, whispering, purling, rising and falling, curved and flowing like a mare's tail of glass down in the dark ground. She covered it again, with the stone, the secret the ash tree had always known. In the same field close to the path was an oak, a rough giant with boughs as thick as any ordinary tree. Its great girth was surrounded by a seat on which generations had sat to love, to plan, to weep. Smock frocks and crinolines, old bonneted women, tired old men, babies and careless children had leaned back against the bowl with its medley of knots and humps it was full of ghosts three times it had been struck by lightning but the tree remained a splendid creature dignified by the name the oak as if it was the only one instead of one in hundreds it was susan's nursery in cavities in its sides she kept her toys and from the shoots springing from the round bosses she hung her pipe of elder and her triangle in the hollows between its roots she made a kitchen with acorn food and a bed of leaves. A swing hung from one great horizontal bough and here she spent many hours. In the dusk she came when the snow was thick on the ground and the air cut like knives and in midsummer she lulled there with a book. The tree was on the edge of a sudden dip, a steep fall into a valley. Susan felt like a bird swooping across the fields only to be pulled back to the tree again. But twice the tree had tried to kill her. The long iron chains jerked treacherously one day and threw her off. She fell with her head on a piece of rock jutting through the bare, thin soil. She was carried home, bathed in blood by her troubled father and stitched up by the village doctor. For a while she kept away from the tree and then she played again beneath it. Weeks later she sat swinging slowly, looking across the valley to the little white roads which climbed the hills and disappeared over the top. She had never been over them they led to wild country where there were no trees and no rivers only moorland and waste places it was quiet for the wind had dropped even in that high place and susan swayed backwards and forwards drinking in the peace of the countryside The bird stopped singing above her head and flew to the lovely ash tree only the green moths which lived in the oak Fluttered softly round. Then Susan heard a tiny sound, so small that only ears tuned to the minute ripple of grass and leaf could hear it. It was like the tearing of a piece of the most delicate fairy calico far away, hidden, deep, as if an elf were making new sheets. She took no notice, but an absurd, unreasoning terror seized her. The things from the wood were free. She sat swinging, softly swinging, but listening, holding her breath, always pretending she did not care. Her heart's beating was much louder than the midget, rip, 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 which wickedly came from nowhere. She looked up at the tree, but there was nothing, no motion, not even a bird, who might have made the sound deep in his tiny throat. he whispered to himself a tune. A voice throbbed in her head. Go away, go away, go away. But she sat on the seat, still, afraid of being afraid. Then aloud, to show them she was not frightened, she sighed and said, "'I am so tired of swinging, I think I will go.' And she slid, trembling off the seat, and walked swiftly away, the blood drumming in her ears, drowning the exquisitely small sound. Immediately the rip grew to a thunder, like a giant hand tearing a sheet in the sky, and the whole enormous bough fell with a crash which sent echoes round the hills. The oaken seat of the swing was broken to fragments, the rock was split and the great chains bent and crushed. Susan stood frozen, bewildered, just outside the reach of the tree. The bough lay like a full-grown oak, torn off, fresh, quivering. The oak tree stood inimical, hating, and Susan never moved. From the farm, Tom Garland rushed out, followed by the men and Becky. The dog barked and the horse and mares galloped across the fields. "'Susan! Susan!' shouted Tom from the gate. "'Susan!' he cried, trembling with fear, as he came to her. "'I thought you'd been crushed to death. What happened? How did you escape? I heard the oak drop its bough with the noise of a house falling, and I hardly durst look. I knew you were swinging.' Susan never answered as she was led away. It was God that took care of her, said Mrs Garland. He warned her and she took the child in her arms on the rocking chair and rocked to and fro. Susan kept silent. She could not speak of them, they might hear. But old Joshua said, Ah, trees are like that. They drop without warning when they want to kill. A slumber did my spirit seal, by William Wordsworth. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. Rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. Hammock at William Duffy's Farm in Pine Island, Minnesota, by James Wright. Over my head, I see the bronze butterfly asleep on the black trunk, blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right, in a field of sunlight between two pines. The droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over, looking for home. I have wasted my life. From chapter three of... A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. In the great building near one corner, there was a mean little door of wood. Ged went to this and knocked loud. To the old man who opened the door, he said, "I bear a letter from the mage Ogion of Gaunt to the warder of the school on this island. I want to find the warder, but I will not hear more riddles and scoffing." This is the school," the old man said mildly. "I am the doorkeeper." enter if you can. Ged stepped forward. It seemed to him that he had passed through the doorway, yet he stood outside on the pavement where he had stood before. Once more he stepped forward, and once more he remained outside the door. The doorkeeper, inside, watched him with mild eyes. Ged was not so much baffled as angry, for this seemed like a further mockery to him. With voice and hand he made the opening spell which his aunt had taught him long ago. It was the prize among all her stock of spells, and he wove it well now. But it was only a witch's charm, and the power that held this doorway was not moved at all. When that failed, Gerd stood a long while there on the pavement. At last he looked at the old man who waited inside. I cannot enter, he said unwillingly, unless you help me. The doorkeeper answered, Say your name. Then again, Ged stood still for a while. A man never speaks his own name aloud until more than his life's safety is at stake. I am Ged, he said aloud. Stepping forward then, he entered the open doorway. Yet it seemed to him that, though the light was behind him, a shadow followed him in at his heels. He saw also as he turned that the doorway through which he had come was not plain wood as he had thought, but ivory without joint or seam. It was cut, as he knew later, from the tooth of the great dragon. The door that the old man closed behind him was a polished horn through which the daylight shone dimly and on its inner face was carved the thousand-leaved tree. "'Welcome to this house, lad,' the doorkeeper said and without saying more led him through halls and corridors to an open court far inside the walls of the building. The court was partly paved with stone but was roofless and on a grass plot a fountain played under young trees in the sunlight. There Ged waited alone some while. He stood still and his heart beat hard for it seemed to him that he felt presences and powers at work unseen about him here, and he knew that this place was built not only of stone but of magic stronger than stone. He stood in the innermost room of the house of the wise, and it was open to the sky. Then suddenly he was aware of a man clothed in white who watched him through the falling water of the fountain. As their eyes met, a bird sang aloud in the branches of the tree, In that moment Ged understood the singing of the bird and the language of the water falling in the basin of the fountain and the shape of the clouds and the beginning and end of the wind that stirred the leaves. It seemed to him that he himself was a word spoken by the sunlight. Then that moment passed and he and the world were as before or almost as before.
0: 92Ys Read By is produced and commissioned by New York's 92Y Underberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings of literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to 92Ys Read By wherever you download podcasts. If you enjoyed this recording, please share it with a friend. Tag us on Twitter or Facebook, 92Y Poetry Center, and let us know your favorites. If you extra enjoyed and you're able in this uncertain time, Please visit 92y.org/helpnow to donate to support 92y and its new digital programming. We rely on your contributions. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great readings at 92y.org/archives.